Lord makes, an, makes a habit of operating and working in ways outside of the expected norms of our world, doesn't he? He consistently pushes his plan of redemption and salvation forward in ways and by people that we normally wouldn't expect. And the Lord, in his perfect wisdom, has an unwavering track record of driving his intentions forward, driving his goals forward, driving his plans forward in ways that defy human logic and defy human wisdom. And there are a number of biblical examples that bear this out. If human wisdom, for example, determined that a firstborn son ought to receive the major uh, portion of the family inheritance, God ensured that it would go to the secondborn. We see this when Isaac had two sons, right? Jacob and Esau. The inheritance should have gone to Esau, but it went to Jacob. We see this in Abraham's sons. The inheritance ought to have gone to Ishmael, but the inheritance went to Isaac. If human wisdom looks to the biggest and strongest person for their choice of a king, as the prophet Samuel was tempted to do in 1 Samuel 16, 6, as the sons of Jesse were brought to him, and he looked at the eldest son, the impressively the impressive hulk that was Eliab, and thought, surely, surely the Lord's anointed is before me. However, the Lord said to Samuel in 1 Samuel 16, 7, do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. And so then, after seven more of Jesse's rather impressive brood of sons passed before Samuel, David was brought in from the fields. David, the ruddy shepherd, was crowned by Samuel, king of Israel. If human wisdom and biology tells us that a 90-year-old woman cannot conceive and bear children, what does the Lord do? The Lord opens the womb of the 90-year-old against all the odds, and she bears a child through whom the Lord will eventually bring about the Savior, the light of the world, as he did with Sarah, Abraham's wife, in Genesis 21. If human wisdom assumes that the gods glorify themselves through the military might of the power of most powerful of nations, the Lord, our God, the God who is, delivers a nation of slaves and calls them to be his chosen people. God redeemed the nation of Israel from the iron grip of the most powerful nation in the world at the time, Egypt, and to them, to Israel, he declared this in Deuteronomy 7, you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples that are on the face of the earth. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. 
if human wisdom dictates that battles are won by the might of one's army or your chariots and well-organized and equipped soldiers, the scripture corrects us by saying in Psalm 33, the king is not saved by his great army. A warrior is not delivered by his great strength. The war horse is a false hope for salvation, and by its great might it cannot rescue. And a clear example of this reality is exposed to view during the time when Gideon was judge over Israel. You remember, right? Gideon had at his disposal an army surpassing 30,000 battle-hardened and ready truce. But the Lord, however, in order to keep the people from boasting in their own might, commanded Gideon to send the large majority of the fighters home. And eventually, the Lord whittled the number down from 30,000 men to 300 men, according to Judges 7, 7 and 8. And these 300 men, led by the Lord, fought against and defeated a Midianite army in excess of 100,000 men according to Judges 8.10. If human wisdom assumes that influential men and women are needed to shape culture, that the best and the brightest are necessary to start a movement, to start a mission, then God shatters this idea when he chooses despised tax collectors, angry zealots, uneducated fishermen to disciple, and then he dispatches them to the world with the precious, wonderful gospel of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And we see the amazement of the religious establishment at the disciples after the resurrection of Jesus and the descent of the Holy Spirit. In Acts 4.13, we read this, when they, the religious leaders, saw the boldness of Peter and John, and perceived that they were uneducated, common men. They were astonished, and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. A few more here. If human wisdom assumed that God's deliverance would be secured through pomp and through power and through displays of worldly grandeur, God takes on flesh he makes his dwelling among us and he goes to the cross. At the cross, humanity witnesses the pinnacle of God's glory expressed to us in the deliverance of a people. Jesus himself prayed to this effect in John 17, verses 1 to 5, when he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed." And after the crucifixion, after the resurrection of Christ, human wisdom might have concluded that Jerusalem, by virtue of their clamoring for the death of Jesus, had in fact rejected Jesus wholesale. 
you might very well have forgiven the apostles if they thought, well, these Jerusalem sinners have rejected Jesus Christ, so let's wash our hands of them. Let's shake the dust of Jerusalem off our shoes and let's begin the task of spreading the gospel to in any place but Jerusalem. They want no part in it. We are not going to go there. But again, while human wisdom might lead us to that conclusion, the perfectly wise Christ appeared to his disciples after his resurrection and said this to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer on the third day, rise from the dead, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. That's Luke 24, 47. Beginning from Jerusalem. And the apostles obeyed the words of Christ and they proclaimed forgiveness in his name to the very people who had Christ crucified. And in a stunning revelation of the depths of mercy and grace that are available to all who call upon our Lord and Savior, thousands of people came to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ as a result of their witness. And they being dispersed later on in the book of Acts bring the gospel over the entire Roman Empire. And now as we come to our text this morning, we are again confronted by the unexpected. Human wisdom might have assumed that Jesus would begin his ministry in Jerusalem, but he doesn't. You might have assumed that Jesus would begin his ministry among the aristocrats, among the important Jewish culture makers, among the religious elite. Human wisdom might counsel Jesus to start off his ministry with a bang. Enter Jerusalem, Jesus. Suck in a chest full of air and bellow out the message. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand with booming voice and slick oratory like that of George Whitfield preaching in the fields of Bristol, England to 60,000 listeners or like the great Charles Spurgeon who preaches at Exeter Hall without a microphone to 25,000 eager listeners. But no, Jesus withdrew into Galilee, into the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, and quite amazingly, it was here, quite far away from Jerusalem, in this podunk town that he began his preaching ministry. And why is this important? Because, as Matthew will reveal, it is the fulfillment of a prophetic word spoken through the prophet Isaiah over eight centuries before. And Jesus will be revealed in this text this morning as the light. He is the light for people dwelling in darkness, the great light. He is for those dwelling in the region and the shadow of death, the light that dawns. Now, while we start out in Zebulun and Naphtali, what we need to realize is that we are in no different position than the, the land of Zebulun and Naphtali. The light of Christ, when he came to this earth and began his ministry, the light of Christ dawned on to the entire world, the whole undeserving world. And we see this as we look in the epistle to the Romans. 
In the epistle to the Romans, the first three chapters of this epistle are dedicated to, the, to, to revealing the darkness that is humanity. In Romans 1, 16, we are told that the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Now, why is this gospel necessary? Because verse 18 of Romans chapter 1 tells us that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. And this is all of us. Every single one of us, apart from Christ, will, in our own nature, and in accordance with our own decision-making, we will, left to ourselves, suppress the truth of God. And humanity has done this from the dawn of time all the way to now. God has revealed himself clearly in nature. He's revealed that he is eternal in power and divine in nature. But what does humanity do with that information? They suppress that knowledge. And what are the results of that suppression of knowledge? What, is the, what happens? Romans one twenty one tells us, For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking, and listen to this, their foolish hearts were darkened. Humanity lives and dwells in a state of darkened hearts. And all the while, we claim to be wise. Verse 22 of Romans 1 tells us, claiming to be wise, they became fools and they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for, here it says, images resembling mortal man, birds and animals and creeping things. But humanity has made a a practice of exchanging the glory of our God for anything and everything at all different times of our existence. And so there was a quite expected result to that the judgment of God. And three times in the rest of this chapter, we see that judgment. God gave them up, verse, chapter 1, verse 24, to the lusts of their heart. And in chapter 20, verse 26, God gave them up to dishonorable passion. And in Romans 1, 28, again, God gave them up to a debased mind. Justice is the expected response of the Lord. But it wasn't just the Gentiles and, the, and, and all of those people in the world, but it was also the ones to whom God had given his specific revelation in the Old Testament. Romans 2 goes on to tell us that God had given the Jews the oracles of him. They had, he had given to them his very word. He had revealed to them specific things about his nature that were not available to the world through nature. And they also suppressed that knowledge and exchanged that knowledge and decided to worship idols rather than the one true God. And as a result, Romans 2.24 tells us that as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. So whether you're a Gentile looking at natural revelation, whether you were a Jew looking at the specific revelation, every single human suppressed the knowledge of God and lived in a state of darkness. And the expected response would be, judgment let them all go to judgment i mean think about it in your own life when somebody hurts you harms you lies to you slanders you it is expected our expected response to that is let them go shake them off get rid of them 
What would be unexpected is if light dawned. What would be unexpected is if God didn't leave us in a state of judgment, but instead we saw the light of the sun crest over the hill and shine light into the darkness. And that's what we come to. Our wickedness, because of our wickedness, the Lord would be perfectly just to give us all up to our sin. He would be perfectly just just to destroy all of us. But our God is merciful, and our God is gracious, and our God is loving, and he does not leave us in the state that we ought to expect, but he does the unexpected. And in his mercy, he undertakes a mission to save. Isn't that amazing? He undertakes a mission to save. And that mission to save had been revealed to us centuries earlier through the prophet Isaiah, that the light would dawn upon those dwelling in darkness, that the light would rise on those who were dwelling in the shadow and the specter of death. But before we get to the prophecy of Isaiah, we must note that this is the last stage of preparation in Jesus' public ministry. Jesus had, in the last chapter, as we walk through the last little bit, Jesus had endured the tests of Satan. He had endured those tests and rebuffed those tests in the wilderness, and he came out victorious. Jesus has proven to be worthy. Jesus has proven that he is the very Son of God who has come into the world, and he succeeded in that wilderness where both Adam and Israel failed, and now he voluntarily embarks on the mission given to him by his Father. The light has come to the world. And so we begin in verse 12. Now when he, that's Jesus, heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. So when we were looking at Matthew 3, we were exposed to the preparatory ministry of John the Baptist. And now when we get to the end of chapter 4, we see that that ministry had run its course. It had accomplished its purpose. John's function was to point out the Messiah, which he had done in Matthew 3. And now, before Jesus begins his ministry, so that there would be no competition in the minds and the hearts of the people who were following John, so that there would be no, uh, I'm of John and I'm of Jesus, so that there'd be none of that, John's removal comes in the form of an arrest. And Luke tells us, the physician Luke, the gospel writer Luke, tells us the exact reason for uh, John's arrest in Luke 3, 18 to 20 says this, Herod the Tetrarch, who had been reproved by him for Herodias, his brother's wife, and for all the evil things that Herod had done, added this to them all, that he locked up John in prison. So here we realize that John was locked up. John was imprisoned for rebuking and reproving the king for his sinful conduct. John had been arrested because or for the specific fact that he was a minister of truth. And all across the world, throughout the centuries and throughout the millennia, God's faithful ministers of truth have met with the same fate as John. 
And this is the reward for many of God's ministers as they call out the sins, as they call out the evil deeds, they call out the unfaithfulnesses of people in the cultures and in the societies that they live in, as they call kings and leaders to account for their wicked deeds, laboring to point everyone in the direction of the light that is Christ, in the direction of holiness and mercy and grace and repentance. And John the Baptist, make no mistake about it, John the Baptist is a great example for us of the courage and the fortitude that God's people ought to possess. He didn't hesitate for a second under the fear of incurring the wrath of the powerful. He did not cower under the fear of incurring the wrath of the important. He didn't cower in fear at the idea of the culture standing against him as he preached against their sin and called the people to repentance. And much like Herod, who took vengeance upon John as though he were an enemy, the culture might level its antagonism and its vicious rage against you if you stand with courage and fortitude for what is right. If you point people to the light of the world, Jesus Christ, and call upon them to follow him. But we know, we know, right? We are not the enemy. We are not the enemy of this world. We are not the enemy of the people. But we are those who love the world. And we preach repentance to the world like John. We preach repentance to the world like Jesus because we know that the greatest path to societal flourishing, we know that the path to true joy and true delight, we know that the path to abundant life is repentance or turning from sin and running to Christ in faith. And John, in preaching repentance to Herod, actually held out to him hope, held out to him joy, held out to him the most delightful life he could live. John showed that he actually loved Herod enough to speak the truth to him. However, as we will see in Matthew 14, this courage and fortitude of John led to his head being served on a platter to Herodias' daughter at the request of her mother. It takes a vast amount of courage, backbone, and resilience to stand for God's truth in a culture of lies. There are lies everywhere, aren't there? Lies from our leaders, lies from our news casts, lies from pundits, lies from culture, lies upon lies upon lies upon lies. And it's into this darkness of lies that Jesus comes and says, I am the light of the world. God's word is unchanging. God's word is truth in a sea of lies. God's truth is light in a world of darkness. And we are the salt. We are the light in this world, pointing it to the only unassailable source of truth, God, His Son, and His Word. But this might be costly. People love the darkness. Apostle John told us that in his gospel. People love the darkness. Are you prepared to pay the price for being light? 
Are you prepared to pay the price for pointing people in the direction of Jesus, who is the light of the world, or will you hide your light under a bushel? If you lack such qualities, ask the Spirit to give you an unstoppable measure of resolve and bravery. Ask the Spirit to prick your soul with a love for this world that cannot be shut up. A love for God that causes your bones to burn if you keep the gospel shut up inside of yourself rather than pouring it out for everyone to hear. Because this world lives in darkness. It needs the light. And the light has come. The light has shone upon this world and we carry it with us everywhere we go. It is up to us. Now, after Jesus heard of John's arrest, he withdrew from Nazareth into Galilee. Now, Luke, Luke also tells us why Jesus left Nazareth, just like he told us about John's arrest. Matthew tends to move quite quickly through some of these. Jesus left Nazareth after he revealed himself to be the fulfillment of another of Isaiah's prophetic words. In Luke 4, 18 to 19, Jesus opened up a scroll, found the place where it said these words, and then said, Today these scriptures are fulfilled in your hearing, and this is the scripture. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering sight to the blind and to set at liberty those who are oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And the people at Nazareth, the culture of the time was one of reciprocity. They expected that if there is some sort of prophet like this in their midst, that he should owe them all sorts of favors before he goes out and does anything for anyone else. But Jesus gave a couple of instances of uh, historical instances where it wasn't to the people in the society that the prophet lived, but to other people that God did his work. And when Jesus told this to them, he said, no prophet is acceptable in his own hometown. And for that reason, he will go and perform his works among other people. This led to a seething anger rising up among those in Nazareth. And we read in Luke 4, 28 to 30, when they, that's the people of Nazareth, heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. And they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill upon which their town was built so that they could throw him off the cliff. But passing through their midst, Jesus went away. Where did Jesus go? To Galilee. And it's here where Jesus launched into his mission. Galilee was the Cape Canaveral of Jesus' public ministry. It was here that Jesus turned water into wine in John chapter 2. It was here that Jesus called the first of his disciples. It was here in Galilee that Jesus began his preaching ministry saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And it was here where Jesus preached the most famous sermon in all of human history, the Sermon on the Mount. Now Jesus left Nazareth as a result of the wrath of the residents there, but Matthew reveals an even deeper reason for Christ's arrival in Galilee. It fulfilled scriptural prophecy. Look at verse 13. And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea, 
in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. As we said in the beginning, the Lord tends in his sovereign grace and in his unparalleled wisdom to work in unexpected ways. Again, Jesus didn't make his way to Jerusalem to work among the high-ranking, highly respected, revered Jews in Jerusalem. But instead, he went to Galilee to work and begin his ministry among the despised and afflicted masses in the densely populated regions of Galilee, among a mixed Jewish and Gentile populace. And it was from this dark region that Jesus traveled from place to place on mission to seek and save the lost. Galilee was the springboard for Jesus' ministry of mercy. It was from Galilee that Jesus walked along the shores and addressed the crowds. It was from here that the gospel was first proclaimed and from here that it was carried to the far reaches of the earth. In all things, as we witnessed in the wilderness tests, Jesus had scripture both obedience to it and fulfillment of it in mind, even down to the village in which he lived. And in fulfilling the prophetic words spoken through Isaiah, Christ disclosed the most wonderful of truths. Listen to this. In Matthew, the early parts of Matthew 4, we see that Christ will resist and rebuff the tests of the devil. But not only will Jesus resist and rebuff the tests of the devil, Jesus is going to go even further. Jesus is now going on the offensive. Jesus is now moving in to Satan's territory, the place where Satan has a hold on those who dwell in darkness. Jesus is advancing into enemy territory, advancing into enemy strongholds, and he is going to shine the light of the gospel to the people. In Jesus, the light has come. In Jesus, the hope has come. Jesus is the light of the world, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And the specific prophecy is recorded by Matthew in verse 15 and 16. Look at it. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. So you see, the main point that Matthew is making here is that the light of deliverance, the light of liberty has arrived to the people that have long languished in darkness and captivity in the person and the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. In Isaiah 9, 1 and 2, which is the text with Matt, which Matthew quotes here, the, the immediate context of that is <clears throat> the oncoming Assyrian invasion of Zebulun and Naphtali. And the words of Isaiah are, in those, when you go back to uh, Isaiah's wording, it says this, There will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time he has brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, but in the latter time he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. Now, notice the time markers here. In the former time and in the latter time, the regions of Zebulun and Naphtali would experience a time of great anguish as the Assyrians came in and swept them all away. But in the latter times, a light would shine 
Contextually, Isaiah is speaking of the return of Israelites to the land from their, uh, and their physical liberation from exile. But Matthew rightly sees a greater fulfillment of this text in the coming of Jesus the Messiah, in the spiritual liberation and deliverance that are offered to the nations through him. The place where people walk in darkness will see a great light. The region in which a light has dawned on those in the shadow of death is Galilee of the Gentiles. Now, why is it called Galilee of the Gentiles? It goes all the way back to the time when the Israelites first entered into the promised land. And Zebulun and Naphtali failed to expel the Canaanites from their territories. As we read in Judges 1.30, Zebulun did not drive out the inhabitants of Kitron or the inhabitants of Nahalal, so the Canaanites lived among them. <clears throat> and in Judges 1.33, we read, Naphtali did not drive out the inhabitants of Beth Shemesh or the inhabitants of Bethanah, so they lived among the Canaanites, the inhabitants of the land. This was an express disobedience to the word and command of the Lord. God commanded that when they entered into the land, the, they were to eliminate these peoples. <clears throat> the Lord commanded such in Deuteronomy 7. Listen to Deuteronomy 7, 1 to 5. When the Lord your God brings you into the land that you are entering to take possession of it and clears away many nations before you, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, seven nations more numerous and mightier than you. And when the Lord your God gives them over to you and you defeat them, then you must devote them to complete destruction. You shall make no covenant with them and show no mercy to them. You shall not intermarry with them, giving your daughters to their sons or taking their daughters for your sons for they would turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. Then the anger of the Lord would be kindled against you, and he would destroy you quickly. But thus shall you deal with them. You shall break down their altars and dash in pieces their pillars and chop down their asherim and burn their carved images with fire. <clears throat> this is no joking matter, right? Zebulun and Naphtali did not heed the command of the Lord. And exactly what the Lord had said would come to pass came to pass as they intermarried with the Canaanites in their land and as they succumbed to pagan influence. And the penalty that was declared by the Lord, that his anger would be kindled and that he would destroy them, came to pass in the 8th century when the Assyrian army swept in and took a large swath of Israel captive. And in their place, the Assyrian leadership sent fellow Assyrians and non-Jews to populate these regions, these regions of Zebulun and Naphtali. And the Jews that remained in those regions were themselves half-hearted and lacking in conviction and lacking in courage. And it was to this region, Galilee of the Gentiles, with such a checkered past of idolatry and movement and Gentiles and darkness. It was this region that would be the first to see the dawning of God's new covenant. Not Jerusalem, Galilee, a most unexpected place. Again, Jesus didn't move to Galilee 
or to Jerusalem, but to Galilee among the mixed multitude that lives there. And what does this emphasize for us? That from the outset of Jesus' ministry, the good news of salvation in Christ is indeed a message for the entire world. The Lord had revealed and spurred his plan of salvation on through the nation of Israel, but it is in no way limited to them. And as Jesus comes to this region, he comes to a people dwelling in darkness. And now, Matthew doesn't quote the entirety of Isaiah chapter 9 here, but the light that dawns is explicitly declared a few verses later. And any observant Jew would have known what came next after this text in Isaiah 9. And we'll know it too. Listen, just a few verses later, the identity of the light is revealed. For to us a child is born. To us a son is given. And the government shall be on his shoulders and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord will do this. This son, the mighty God and the prince of peace, had come to Galilee of the Gentiles, to the people dwelling in darkness. What does it mean to dwell in darkness? What is this state? It is all people without the light of the Son of God. It is a condition of danger, of delusion, of depravity, of despair, and hopelessness. So while Jesus came to Galilee to fulfill Scripture, this reality of a people dwelling in darkness didn't and doesn't stop at the borders of Galilee. This darkness casts its shade over the entire planet. And all of us were born into this darkness. All of us were at one point a child of this darkness. That is, until the sun of righteousness crested over the hills, the light shone upon us, and we turned to the light, we ran to him, and we began following him. This is why Christ commanded us, his people, to go into all the world, teaching everything that he has commanded, because the state of all peoples and all places before the arrival of the gospel is that of utter and abject darkness, which is why the Apostle Paul can use such wonderful phraseology and terminology when he talks about the, the feet of the gospel, right? You remember that in Romans chapter 10 when he says, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news, meaning how delightful, how timely, how pleasant are those who come and shine the light of the gospel in the dark places. And this is why Jesus came. He came to reveal the tender mercy of our loving God. In Luke, Zechariah says, Whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death. This is going to be the ministry of our Messiah. And Isaiah, again in chapter 42, prophesied that Jesus, the chosen servant of the Lord, would come as a light for the nations to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. And for those dwelling in the shadow of death, the light of Christ has dawned. And dwelling in the shadow of death is a terrifying place. 
as those who call this home, this, this place of darkness, many people call this home, and they don't realize the danger they are in, constantly teetering on the brink of utter damnation. But on to them who dwell in darkness, the shadow of light has dawned. It has pierced the darkness and flooded the land with light. And what is this light? Jesus. Jesus is the light seen in Galilee of the Gentiles. Jesus is the light that has dawned on all of us who dwelt and who now dwell in the shadow of death. And Jesus made this explicit in the Gospel of John when he unequivocally declared, walking into the Feast of Tabernacles in John 8, 12, saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Now Jesus spoke these words at the festival of tabernacles, a festival that commemorated God's faithfulness to Israel's ancestors in the wilderness. You remember the history, right? Ten plagues in Egypt, Moses leading the people out from enslavement, the enslavement of the most powerful nation in the world. And finally, Pharaoh said, get out of here, take your people and go. And as Israel was cheering and celebrating their newfound freedom, walking out from Egypt and going to wherever the Lord was going to lead them, Egypt changed its mind. Egypt sent out its armies to reclaim their slaves. And as Israel was leading, the Lord led them from the front in the form of a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire or light by night. And as Pharaoh's chariots and soldiers chased after the fleeing Israelites, as they moved ever closer, ever closer, and ever closer, Israel found itself stuck in an impossible situation with the sea on one side and the quickly approaching Egyptian army on the other. And God, in the pillar of fire, in the pillar of light, moved from the front of Israel's ranks all the way to the back and kept distance between the people and Egypt to protect them. God lit up the darkness. God lit up the night in that pillar of fire. And he parted the Red Sea so that they could cross through safely. The people who had dwelt in fear in that seemingly hopeless situation were rescued by the light of the Lord. That same pillar through the Egyptian forces who had run into the sea to, cap, to, to try and catch up to Israel into confusion and panic, causing them to turn back and flee, as we read in Exodus 14, 24 and 25. It says this, And in the morning watch, the Lord in the pillar of fire and of cloud looked down on the Egyptian forces and threw the Egyptian forces into a panic, clogging their chariot wheels so that they drove heavily. And the Egyptians said, Let us flee from before Israel, for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. And so it was that this scared, unarmed people, close to the shadow of death, by the light of the Lord, watched as the greatest, most well-equipped, most fearsome army in the world fled before them as the light from God dispelled the darkness. The light of the pillar of fire led Israel in the wilderness for the next 40 years and finally led them into a land of their own, a land that the Lord had promised to give them. <clears throat> the light of the Lord has always shone in the darkness and rescued his people. And it's this Feast of Tabernacles. This was a celebration of this stage in Israel's history. 
And they would commemorate it at the temple by lighting four huge lamps that looked like giant candlesticks. And Jesus walked into this celebration as the light flooded the area and as the people were praising the Lord for being their light in the wilderness, Jesus walks in and said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not enter or will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And as Jesus says this, you know that everybody in there recognizes that this imagery of light is used all throughout Scripture. And all of these images come flooding to the forefront at creation. As darkness dwelled over the face of the deep, God said, let there be light, and the light dispelled the darkness. In like manner, Jesus comes and says, I am the light of the world. At his incarnation, Jesus brings light to the darkness that is this world. The word of God in Scripture is referred to as a light. Remember Psalm 119, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path meaning Scripture lights the way to life with the Lord, and Christ is the one to whom all Scripture points. He is the ultimate light, paving and securing the way to life with God. In Psalm 27, we realize that God himself is the light. When the psalmist writes, The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? And it is with this in mind that Jesus enters into the temple and says, I am the light of the world. And all as this imagery of light was in the forefront of the people's minds, Jesus claimed to be the servant prophesied by Isaiah, the servant who is the light to the nations, the servant through whom salvation might extend to the ends of the earth. This Jesus, the light of the world, extends the offer of salvation to everyone who dwells in darkness. And you might be asking yourself, so who exactly is it that dwells in darkness? Well, quite simply, all who do not follow Jesus dwell in darkness. You saw that in what Jesus said, right? Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness. The corresponding truth is that if you don't follow him, you are walking in darkness. The world is dark apart from Christ. And all who do not trust in Christ wander and grope around in the dark. And all who don't follow Christ live right now in the shadow of death. And there are only two realms, and we need to know this. There are only two realms, the realm of darkness and the realm of light. And all of humanity finds itself in one of these two domains. In Colossians chapter 1, verse 13 The Apostle Paul wrote this, We give thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son. There are two domains, the domain of darkness or the kingdom of his beloved Son who is the light of the world. And so if you dwell in the darkness, you dwell in the land of sin, You dwell in the land of death. You dwell in the land of hatred for the light. And the end result of dwelling in that domain is your eternal destruction. But there is an offer held out to you to move from the domain of darkness into the light of Jesus Christ. And in the light of Jesus Christ, following him, that life is one of life. 
It is one of eternal and abundant life. In the light, we have knowledge of God. In the light, we have relationship with God. In the light, we are adopted into the family of God, and now we can be sons and daughters of God and call Him our Father. And all who have not bowed their knee in repentance and faith in Jesus Christ live in the domain of darkness. And for everyone who has bowed their knee to the Lord Jesus Christ as the light, you are light in the Lord. A transfer took place. As Paul wrote in Ephesians 5.8, at one time, at one time, you were darkness. At one time, I was darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. And so now, what are you called to do? 1 Peter 2 tells us, We, the church, the children of Christ, are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. We are the ones who go out and proclaim this light. And recognize, it's going to be difficult. Every so often they they find new animals in the deepest depths of the ocean. Have you seen some of those pictures of these animals they find? They're always a little bit creepy, right? Because they've been down in the darkness for so long. They have not seen light. Some of them are just miles and miles and miles and miles down into the ocean. And when they pull them up, you're like, oh, man, you have spent way too much time in the darkness, man. It's, this, it's filthy and gross looking. And when you're down in the darkness for so long, none of these animals have eyes that work. And the situation of those who live in darkness and who don't come to the light of Christ is similar. We just stop being able to see the light and eventually our eyes don't work. And so it's very difficult for us. We need the Holy Spirit to come and to illuminate and to open the eyes of these people that have lived in the depths of darkness for so long. We need to go out to them and and proclaim Christ's call. The same call that Christ gave to you, same call that Christ gave to me. Come to me. And it's not easy. In fact, it'll be exceedingly painful as your old patterns of sin and your old patterns of darkness are replaced by ever-increasing degrees, by many levels, into, by the hands of the Holy Spirit, into ever-increasing light. Every day you will be transformed to reflect Christ more and more and more in your actions and in your deeds. So if you're in the dark, come to Christ. If you're in the light, come to Christ and let him continue to transform you into his image. If you're in the dark, do whatever it takes, no matter how, how, how it makes you look to others. I can remember a time when my wife and I worked at a, a drop-in center <clears throat> They had this uh, event where we would go, we were going to go to this cave that went really deep underground. Everybody was going to walk, and you're going to see how far you can get into this cave all the way to the end. And I thought, man, I am a man of courage. I'm going to jump into that cave first. I found out something about myself that day. As I jumped into the cave wholesale, moved in about six feet, and everybody else came piling in behind me, I realized in that moment, I'm claustrophobic. 
And in that moment, I thought, I got to get to the light. I got to get out of here. I got to get out of the darkness and into the light. And I started elbowing people and kicking people and pushing people as my mind just turned into this irrational ball of energy trying to get out of the darkness and into the light. And the boss, our boss at the time, had to grab me on the shoulders and go, boom, Gino, Gino, calm down, hold on. Everybody's going to get out. I was so terrified of being in the dark. And if you are walking in the dark, not following the light of the world, the light that is flood into the world, do anything and everything you need to get out of that darkness. Kick, elbow, punch, claw, scratch. Get out of the darkness and come into the light of Jesus Christ. The offer is on the table for everyone who desires it. Jesus is the only light for everyone in the world. Notice, Jesus didn't say, I am a light. He said, I am the light. Anyone who wants to be in relationship with God or to move out of the darkness that has come upon all who dwell in the darkness must come to Christ alone by grace through faith. And this light is available to everyone, regardless of your economic status, regardless of your political views, regardless of the color of your skin, regardless of the country from which you come. The whole world desperately needs the light of Christ. So the call is not just to Zebulun or to Naphtali. The call is not just to Galilee of the Gentiles. The call is for everyone to come to wholehearted devotion and discipleship. The call is to everyone to come to Jesus, to deny themselves, to take up their cross, and to follow him. The call is for all of us to call others to the same. And those who follow Christ will have the light of life. You will reflect the light of Christ to your circles. You will be liberated from eternal death hell and darkness and you will be guided by the life-giving light of the holy spirit but if you reject or refuse to follow christ that means that right now you remain in darkness and we live in a world that is characterized by darkness and at this moment it seems like we're seeing a whole lot of extra darkness right and i'm not sure what the lord is doing in this crazy time that we find ourselves in but it does feel really dark at this moment But our society has never done anything other than dwell in the dark. This is just a new way that the darkness is showing itself. We live in a culture that, a world that dwells in the very shadow of death. But our mission has not changed. Our call has not changed. Our role in this world has not changed. The light has dawned on those who dwell in darkness. The light has risen on those who dwell in the shadow of death. And we are his people. And we are the ones, we are the feet of the good news. We are the ones who carry the light of the gospel of Christ to this world. And we are tasked with bringing the light to the nations. And I'm telling you that as we come out of this time, There are going to be a lot of people who have questions about why we endured such a time of darkness and they won't have answers for it. Are you ready to be there to answer those questions? The best place to begin in terms of your bringing light to this society and this culture will be with those around you, those with whom you are already in relationship. 
those who will have an acute sense of hopelessness and will look at you and will say, something's different about you. It's like some sort of light has dawned upon you. Tell me about it. Won't that be a great time? The light has dawned. We know the message. Let's proclaim it. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Father, we thank you and we praise you for your word. We thank you that you work in such unexpected ways. You could have left us to die in the filth and darkness of our own sin, but you are gracious and you are merciful and you are wonderful. And you didn't leave us to die in our own sins. Instead, you took on flesh and you made your dwelling among us. Instead, you came to seek and save the lost. And we praise you that you sought us and you saved us, all of your children, all over the world. And we praise you for the fact that your ministry of salvation and your ministry or your mission of, of light pervading the areas of darkness is still going on to this very day and will go on unstoppably until the day you return. So I pray that you would give us comfort and hope in that fact, that you would give us rest and joy and delight in the reality that we are your sons and we are your daughters because you are so good. And we praise you for the light that is dawned in the darkness. And it's in his name, our Lord Jesus Christ, that we pray. Amen.